yeah, I think it's often the case, you know, that I'll talk to people who are experiencing anxiety and depression and it may be that they are actually just really unhappy in their current relationship and a part of their subconscious maybe knows this isn't right for me and I think it's going to have to end. But that emotional scary package is too much for the conscious brain quite yet. So that's an example maybe of of where the unconscious has kind of got a bit of a step ahead uh, in terms of the conscious mind. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rage Active podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. He is a medical doctor, a psychiatry resident, and mental health advocate. He's also a leading voice across the media space, having appeared on the Today Show, Studio 10, and contributed to publications such as the New York Post, Men's Health in Australia, US and UK, Women's Health Australia, and so many more. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kieran Kennedy. Thank you so much, Rach. That was a very, uh, a very kind, humbling little intro there. Thank you. No, it's so amazing to, to see all the work that you've done. And I think like, well, one of the things that we were just chatting about before we hit record, obviously, was the serendipitous way in which that mm. we've come to sit down to chat to each other today. So I reckon we tell the story because I think it's a really cool story. Yeah. Um, so one of my regulars came up to me after a Pilates session and she said to me, I know who you should have on your podcast next. And, and she said, um, you know, one of my colleagues... He's really great and he does a lot of media stuff. His name's Kieran Kennedy. And I had literally just sat down with Scotty Henderson, who is the editor of Men's Health, two mm-hmm. days before she had come up to me in studio. And um, and Scott and I were talking about you and the really cool projects that you guys are working on. Mm-hmm. So... How cool is it that we finally get to? I was going to say, how small world full circle is that? Because as I was just saying to you, Rachel, I remember talking to Scotty and he was saying he was going off to record a podcast. And then next minute, I had a message from Adele saying that she'd touched base with you. So, yeah, Yeah. I I love that. Like the world is huge, but it's also tiny and uh, nice example of it there. Yeah, it's so cool. And I think, you know, I think it's just an example that you were just, you and I were just meant to chat on this podcast. Exactly. It's just this meant was, to be. This was meant to happen. And, and hopefully that means I'm not going to put my foot in my mouth or, or say <laughs> it's going to be a great <laughs> chat, obviously. I'm sure you will not. I'm sure you won't. So I'm so excited to have you on the show. And, um, you know, one of the things I really love about all the work that you're doing is just that you're combining, you know, the mental and the physical aspects of health mm-hmm. and really promoting the importance of strengthening our mental muscles. So you do Mm -hmm. also have this really um, quite an interesting history and background in fitness. So I'm interested to know and interested to hear a little bit more about your experience in bodybuilding Mm -hmm. and that space and, you know, sort of what you learnt around that time, the mindset of competing and what was sort of going on around that whole, whole thing that you were doing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, 
it's always interesting. People always kind of, you know, because obviously I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist now and, and I'm a doctor and I love medicine and I'm a massive geek about it. There's no, no, I'm, there's no hiding that. But yeah, I've also always been in love with fitness as well. And I've always been a, a gym bunny. And I think when people hear that I used to do competitive bodybuilding and a bit of fitness modeling things. They're always like, wait, how do those two things <laughs> go together? <laughs> go together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, I uh, haven't done it competitively in a few years now, but for, for quite some time, I did the competitive bodybuilding scene. Um, I was a physique competitor uh, and did that in Australia and New Zealand and got pulled across to Shanghai and China for some fitness expos and really amazing random things. Um, and I just loved it. You know, I, I loved the, the, the challenge of competing. Um, I loved juggling it with work and working crazy hours and night shifts at the hospital. And that probably makes me, you know, some kind of masochist, uh, but um, <laughs> yeah, I just loved the the mental side of it actually, as you kind of said there, Rach, like mm. I, I just frothed over making that long-term goal and plan, you know, the, the diet, the training, um, and just pushing through when you were exhausted some weeks, but, but still trying to hit those bits and pieces. So, um, yeah, have always loved sport and fitness and that's been a big part of my life. And I think it's a big part of how I kept my sanity during medical school and, mm, and those yeah. early years of being a doctor, that was actually my outlet. Um, but yeah, it taught me a lot about the physical body, obviously, but also the mind. And so it's really interesting now as a psychiatrist, I've kind of come almost full circle in terms of wanting to combine those things and advocate for body and mind being together. And I think it's the fact that in my personal life, the things that I'm passionate about are very much mind body based. So yeah, it's a weird, it's, it's a bit of a weird background for a psychiatrist, but <laughs> at I least for now so, it's worked out. So. It's so cool, I think. And, and I think that's probably one of the things that I really resonate with your work is because I have a really um, strong passion around combining the two as well. Mm. And it does seem like it shouldn't go together in some respects, but then at the same time, it yep. so should. It just does. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so it's, it's so good that what, what you're doing. And I mean, during this period of time when you were doing this kind of competitive bodybuilding and mm. fitness modeling, what were the lessons that you learned around perceptions of body and also mm. expectations or body expectations? And I suppose, you know, the effects on mental health that that kind yeah. of has as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there were a lot of lessons uh, personally and, and then lessons, I think, professionally as well that now kind of mm. serve me actually in my psychiatry work. Um, you know, obviously I loved it. For me, it was about the challenge. It was about trying to reach that next kind of tier and level or, or that next competition. Um, but looking back on it now, there, there were periods where it, it was really very tough in terms of the focus it makes you have on just the aesthetics of your body you know and and I think even for men within that sort of bodybuilding fitness modeling kind of space I think it can it can be very um heavy on the mental side in terms of that 
being so self-critical and so focused on appearance and other people judging that appearance directly yeah. you know I mean bodybuilding and um you know I think it extends into a lot of different sports and obviously for men and women it extends into modeling and other things but you know when the whole ethos of something is around other people judging looking at balancing weighing up putting you against others in terms of just solely how you look I think that can that can really put some strain on your mental health. And, and at times it did for me, you know, there were times where I sort of felt like, okay, there is a lot of time and energy and focus and sometimes anxiety going into what I look like and whether my left shoulder is balanced with my right shoulder and mm. <laughs> how my abs look, you know, proportionally compared to my chest and all of these things that for bodybuilders are very much a part of that sport and a part of that life. Um, but it did sort of teach me about, you know, the, the impact that that level of focus on appearance and food and diet can have for people. And, you know, I think in my work now, there are so many more men actually coming through with pressures and anxieties around body image and appearance and looking good enough or being fit enough. So it's it's interesting that I have a little bit of that personal experience and, and can kind of connect with people, I guess, when they're talking about struggling with some of those things, because, you know, I think I was lucky to, to have it always be a very positive experience for me, but I absolutely saw some of the, the mental weight that that level of focus on your appearance can can put, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, it's so interesting to hear that because so often I think like I was saying to Scotty, we hear in mainstream messaging that women experience that a lot. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a very big um, thing for women, but it's sort of really nice to hear from a male's perspective what you guys are also experiencing mm. as well and, and that it's not uh, specific, I guess, to just, you know, women and yep. it's, you know, men experience that too. And just to be conscious of it as well, I suppose, I think is is um, is um really good and have that awareness around it. Definitely, you know, and I think we're seeing that in some of the research and stats that's coming that are coming out as well, which is mm. really interesting. You know, they've even done studies showing that men's, advertising and even action figures and superheroes that we give our kids as toys in the last 20, 30 years, those have changed substantially to to give young men and even boys a very skewed image of what the male body should look like. You know, the proportions of action figures that little kids are playing with, for example, are not humanly possible in terms of the ratio of their shoulders and chest and arms and waist. Um, So we have definitely seen that society has kind of put increasing levels of pressure on men in terms of how they look. And women have obviously had that so much more and and so much intensely for many, many years now. But as you say, Rach, it's interesting that modern society is is actually putting a lot of pressure on men in that department as well. And we're seeing that in terms of more men presenting with 
eating disorders, anxiety about their appearance, body dysmorphia. So, um, yeah, it's, it is an important thing to kind of get out there. And I know Scotty and, and the work they're doing with men's health are really kind of pushing that as well, which is awesome. So Yeah, it's so good to have the conversations around it and just to bring it to people's awareness, I think, in a more um, broader sense, right? So 100%. Yeah, so it's normalised in a way. Now, I mean, tying in with this, one of the things that you talk about a lot is I guess this idea of masculinity mm. and specifically toxic masculinity, I think yep. you speak to. Can you can you sort of speak to that and explain what that is? What What is yeah. toxic masculinity? Yeah, it's a good question because I think it's a term that we've all probably heard or we've seen it online or we've thrown it around. Um, and I think medically it's not actually a term that I'm a fan of at all. You know, I think it comes with a lot of... of um, heaviness attached to it and a lot of sort of pejorative um, messaging around it but I guess toxic masculinity is this idea that there is uh, there are aspects to masculinity or manhood that are not so helpful or even potentially dangerous when it comes to to men's health for themselves but also potentially to society and to women as well and so when we're talking about toxic aspects of masculinity I think it's important to say we are absolutely not saying that that masculinity or being a man is toxic. We're talking about some of the ways that society has traditionally pressured men and taught boys in terms of how they need to act to be a man. And, and that is things like men don't cry or show emotion. That's things like men have to show status and power through physical um, violence. Uh, it, it even extends into things like men always have to be dominant uh, and women always have to be passive, for example. You know, there are these societal pressures that are placed on men and women in terms of us being told from a very young age what's masculine and what's feminine. Um, and from there, you know, it kind of seeps into how men act and that can really impact their health in a, in a not so helpful way. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's a, such a fascinating topic to me because often these messages that we receive, narratives that receive that we receive, aren't explicit either, mm -hmm. right? So it's not like people are directly saying to you, "You can't do this" or "You need to be like that." It's all through almost implicit messaging, right? Absolutely, yeah. And that's why it's so powerful. You know, I think it's it's not like someone sits boys down at five and says okay lads if you want to be a man you have to not cry you have to always be dominant you have to show physical power and status over others you're right it kind of seeps in through how we see other men acting it seeps in through tv and movies through advertising uh, and that's why it's actually so powerfully ingrained because it kind of goes into that subconscious implicit part of the brain where we don't even really register that it's there um i'm a kiwi obviously as you can probably tell from my, <laughs> my dulcet tones um but i grew up in quite a small rural kind of farming town in new zealand and um you know, amazing family, amazing influences, but, you know, certain pockets of Australia and New Zealand, and I think Aussie and NZ as a whole, actually, those implicit kind of pressures around masculinity, masculine stereotypes, they're very powerful. And you're absolutely right. Most of it comes from an implicit 
kind of just soaking it up from what's around us. Um, and yeah, I think as we said, when we're talking toxic aspects of that, we're talking aspects that we now know are really detrimental to men's mental and physical health and also potentially to, to those around them as well. So I'm very passionate about kind of outing them and pushing back on them and saying, actually, it's 2022 now. This isn't what manhood is. And if we're going to kind of look after men's mental and physical health and look after the world and everyone else around us, we need to start kind of pushing back on some of those things because there's nothing in a man's brain that says men don't cry or men can't show emotion. The reason men are more likely than women to bottle emotions up and not talk about things is because that's the way society has implicitly told them they have to be if they want to be a man. And obviously, as a shrink, I'm going to say that that is absolute rubbish and we need to be knocking back on that. So, Yeah, 100%. I think it's just good to be aware of it. If, if It's one of those things that because it's an unconscious thing and it's implicit, oftentimes that that tape is running without you, yes, uh, you're not consciously aware of what's Completely. going on. So I think just shining the light of awareness on it yeah. at least then brings it to the surface where you can start to even question those beliefs and question those narratives around, okay, so this is what I'm seeing, but is that actually true? It, can I change that? You know, and I think that's that's the really cool thing that you're doing. So 100%. how should we redefine masculinity or if mm. or question it or you know start to unpack those limiting frameworks around masculinity yeah and that's that that's the gold that's kind of the money spot right there isn't it and um <laughs> I wish I had like a, a, a zinger for that to sum it all up but you know I think just as you said Rach I love that I think so much around some of these complex psychological societal kind of issues and pressures does come down to actually just shining the spotlight on it because especially when things are implicit they're kind of ingrained in us and passed down through generations the way we actually start to shift it is acknowledging that it's there and that's where I think discussions around quote unquote toxic masculinity is helpful because again it's not saying that being a man being masculine is bad toxic wrong it's just saying there are some aspects to that that society puts on us as men that we really need to shine a spotlight on and change so I think that is step number one and I think from there it's about men and women actually gently gradually kind of pushing back on some of these things and so I think for me that's why I'm so passionate about bringing some of my work as a psychiatrist into more mainstream media and areas where it might not traditionally kind of be there and that started actually with bodybuilding you know I would have guys coming up to me in the gym or at bodybuilding competitions saying often in a whisper and kind of hushed, uh, <laughs> I, I hear you're a mental health doctor. Can I ask you something about this breakup I'm going through? Or I think I've got anxiety, but I don't really know. You know, and, and that there is a point where men are obviously pushing back on some of those traditional masculinity kind of vibes because they're opening up and not bottling up. And so I think it's us all gradually shifting away from this black and white, this is what a man is, this is what a woman is, and knowing that you can still be a man, you can still be masculine, you can still have some of those great positive 
kind of masculinity aspects to yourself. But that doesn't mean that you have to define your manhood by never showing emotion or putting status and dominance above everything else. Um, so I think if we're leaning into that and modeling that for others and especially younger men around us, that's how that will hopefully slowly start to shift. And, and in my own little way, I guess that's what I'm hoping to do by talking about mental health um, things, for example, in spaces like TV and Men's Health magazine and, and, you know, places where we maybe need to be having more of these conversations. Yeah, 100%. And I think I think it's so good to be able to talk about it and, and yes, normalise it across the population, I guess, not just men specifically, but for all of us to be aware of it. Um, so you just mentioned there that I guess this this idea of exuding strength and resilience and um, is, is sort of typically associated with being a man or, you know, having 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 those qualities that are attributed mm. to being a man. And, you know, even if men are struggling with stress or self-doubt or anxiety or depression or other mental health challenges, um, just to, I guess, know that it's okay to speak about these things and it's, I guess, not a weakness, I suppose, to show them. How can we dismantle that stigma? Because there is this thing, aside from it being attributed to their masculinity, I think just talking about emotions as a generalisation is a more difficult thing for men traditionally to do and also to admit that they may be struggling with mental health challenges like anxiety or depression. Um, can you sort of speak to that a little bit about how we can destigmatize it, but also how can men start to feel okay about talking about these mm. things? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really difficult. And I, I never want to, to, kind of wade into a conversation and and try and make out to men or women that that these are easy things to do you know oh just you know talking about mental struggles isn't a weakness just talk about it like <laughs> I'm very aware that that's a bit doctor speakish in terms of you know um it's it's not easy so I, I absolutely understand that and it's not easy for women either I think it's important for us to point that out because stigma around mental illness, mental health struggles. This is something that's still there for, for all of us, you know, regardless of, of your gender. Um, but I think for men, it's particularly difficult, as you say, Rach, because a lot of those societal pressures tell men that if they're struggling, and especially if they're talking about struggling, it means they've somehow failed, they're somehow weak, they're somehow more feminine than masculine. So men actually have a lot of pressure to not show any cracks and to not talk about those cracks, even if they know that that's there. And for me, I think across my psychiatric training and now my work, it's it's always been so incredibly gut-wrenching when I have a young guy, for example, come to the emergency department at 3 a.m. on the, the brink of something awful happening because for months and months and months, they've been struggling, knowing they need help, knowing they can't cope, but they haven't been able to talk to anyone about it because of this fear that people will see them differently or it'll make them less of a man or that's just not what you do as a guy. Um, 
So, you know, it's something that's very real in there. And again, I think it's it's around us slowly trying to push back on some of these pressures and stereotypes. Um, it's about us as brothers, mates, gym buddies, run buddies, partners. It's about us kind of leaning into asking each other how we're doing and knowing that it's it's never a, a sign of weakness or failure if you are struggling or you want to talk about emotions. Um, something that I talk to a lot of people about is, is how we make that easier for all of us, but particularly for men. And it's not easy, let's face it. Talking about emotions is messy and tricky. It's confronting, it's upsetting. But um, there are ways, especially for men, that the science now shows us we can make that a little easier. And one example of that is adding a diffuser um, in the middle. So I talk about that with, with men a fair bit. And that's, for example, um, adding something like while you're going for a walk or a run or while you're doing the dishes or it might be while you're hitting a tennis ball, you know, um, across a net. It might be bringing it up then so that there's something kind of practical and action-based in the middle that is diffusing some of the intensity out of those conversations. And there's some really interesting research showing that for men that can actually help. It can help us lads kind of open up and unhinge that lid a little bit um, to let it out without feeling that it's such an intense kind of face-to-face -face, um, discussion just on the emotions. So I think it's about using little tricks and tips like that to lean into getting men to become more used to talking about those things and knowing that it's not a weakness. It's, it's actually a massive strength to be able to, to talk about your emotions and say you're struggling. Yeah, 100%. Oh, I really like that tip, actually. I've never heard that before. And I think it's useful for all of us to know that that's something that can help, you know, because mm -hmm. also too, like it's it's one of those things that we are, we've gone through a very massive couple of years that, yes. you know, there's a lot going on and that's just something really helpful to implement, I think, with people that we know in our lives. So adding Absolutely. a diffuser, something practical, action-based that we can be doing to decrease the intensity and especially like you were saying with men um, traditionally or as a generality that sometimes it's a little bit more uncomfortable for them to talk about emotions and it's probably not something again as a generalization that is practiced a lot and I know Absolutely. you know that the more you practice speaking about your emotions the easier it gets and the less uncomfortable it becomes um, I know from my experience as a woman obviously I think I mean I talk about my emotions quite openly and easily mm -hmm. so it's probably a little bit less uncomfortable so yeah. that's so great to have that as a actionable tool to use in Definitely. our lives and like we said before you know this this absolutely isn't just generalizing to men you know all of us can find this difficult in some way and, and I know many women find it difficult as well to talk about certain things or certain emotions so adding that diffuser or um, beyond blue, I think it is calls uh, has a really beautiful thing that I love as well. They call it a chat lap, which is uh, having a chat while you're driving in the car, which again, it sounds like a very basic thing, but they've done studies and research into it showing that it's, it's actually easier sometimes for us to talk about difficult things and emotional things. If we're sitting side by side rather than face to face. Mm. Um, so little things like, that are just beautiful little actionable tips, I think, to, to help all of us kind of 
just open up. And it might be that you're the friend worried about a friend. So you're the one kind of trying to pluck up the courage to ask and open the conversation, or you might be the one who's struggling. And there's that little part of you that is sort of thinking, I I really should tell someone about this or talk about this. So maybe I'll tell mum or maybe I'll tell my girlfriend or, or my best mate or whoever it is. So yeah, try the chat lap maybe if you, when you're chat in the car lap. with someone next. Yeah, I like that. So a practical, actionable um, activity or a chat lap. Mm-hmm. That's a, I think that's really cool. Um, so talking about Beyond Blue actually um, and like we just mentioned, obviously mental health issues affect people across society, not just specifically men, not just specifically women. Um, I mean, some of the stats that I looked up, and these are probably more recent stats, Beyond Blue reports that one in six females will experience depression in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. One in eight males will experience depression in their lifetime. One in five of the LGBTI community will experience depression in their lifetime. And over 75% of mental health problems occur before the age of 25. Mm -hmm which I actually found that to be quite alarming, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's so interesting because I guess if you're experiencing these things at a younger age, it's not like it just sort of happens when you're young and then it goes away. Sometimes these things then to be- become patterns of behaviour, right, that we carry through to the rest of our lives. So I'm, I'm really interested to know uh, from your perspective what the – biggest or most common causes are of, I guess, I mean, there's so many different avenues of mental health we can talk, touch on, but I guess anxiety and depression are probably the most common. So from your perspective or perhaps what you've observed, what are the most common causes of developing anxiety symptoms, depression states, all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a perfect kind of place to focus on or start because, yeah, anxiety and depression are our big ticket items, unfortunately. You know, they're, they're two of our most common conditions worldwide, including physical conditions. And conditions like anxiety and depression are actually the number one cause of disability worldwide Um, so some of the stats like the ones you just kind of pulled out there Rach are really confronting even for me still as a mental health doctor it's pretty alarming to think about how common these things are and how much they're affecting people Um, and you know the, the interesting thing about mental illness or mental struggles is that there's a genetic component so we know that for anxiety and depression for some people, that can very much be a biological thing. It can very much be something that that is in the brain in terms of some of the balance of the neurochemicals there. Depending on what theory you're, you're kind of going with, there'll be some <laughs> doctors and psychologists <laughs> out there that might <laughs> be rolling around in metaphorical <laughs> graves right now. But, you know, generally we know that for, for mental illness and anxiety and depression, some of it is genetic. Uh, And that maybe gives us a a bit of a preset vulnerability. You know, some people can go through horrific things and never struggle with depression and anxiety. And that may be because their biological genetic set point is different to somebody else's. Um, But I think far and away, I mean, you asked what the most common causes for young people, especially of, of struggling would be. You know, I think it's it's a lot of our life transition points is what I see people, especially young people, struggling with. So 
It might be trying to figure out what to study at university or coping with some of those intense pressures around study and grades. Um, relationships are a biggie. And I think regardless of what age we're at, I think our relationships are one of the biggest strains on our mental health potentially, which is probably because they're also one of the, the biggest positives and key points to, I think, human life really so that makes sense but you know I think it's those big ticket items like our careers our study our relationships uh, and when those things are at a point of sudden change or loss that's when anxiety and depression can often be sparked um, but it can also come just because we're moving through transitions for those things as well and it's always interesting to look at some of the research that shows that even positive changes and transitions can be incredibly stressful and straining on our mental health so I was telling you just before Rach I've done a recent move to Sydney yes. and that involved relocating furniture and stuff interstate and all of these things and I mean obviously it's a very positive experience I've been excited about it but it's stressful just as an example and so I think we need to remember that any point of big transition and change in our life whether it's a new relationship a relationship ending moving cities you know getting your first job after uni all of these things are points that can put a lot of pressure on our mental health and if people are finding themselves not sleeping, feeling lower, amotivated, feeling anxious. That's not necessarily an abnormal thing in some ways. It's, it's the brain and body reacting to just significant change and trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Yeah. And for a lot of people that can then fall into a bit of a cycle and a pattern where that starts to, to kind of catch up on them and overload them and it might turn into a full depression or an anxiety disorder and that's when they might come and see a doctor like me so yeah that's so fascinating I find that I mean it makes sense right logically when you think about the big things that we've got going on in our mm. lives they're the big things our uh, significant relationships um, mm. careers and life transitions change loss those kinds of things obviously can bring about uh, these symptoms, anxiety, depression. I'm really curious to know whether you feel that if you're if you're experiencing, say, some anxiety uh, symptoms that may be a little bit more increased, more than normal, do you feel that? Because sometimes, like we were talking about the unconscious before as well, mm. and, and often the unconscious knows things before our conscious mind. Absolutely. Gets, gets clued yep. in, right? Yep. And so because anxiety is this thing that we experience, I guess we can experience it in the body. Obviously, you've got symptoms that yep. you experience, a variety of different symptoms. Can anxiety be almost a almost like a clue that something is changing, even mm -hmm. if we don't know that it is yet, mm -hmm. if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel you. I, that's such a good question and an interesting thing to discuss because absolutely, you know, I think – a lot of struggling with something or starting to go through a change, you know, a lot of that can start subconsciously, you know, and even if we are going through change or loss or a breakup, for example, it's fascinating how good the mind is at keeping that out of our conscious awareness. Yes. So, for example, so many people that I have seen and I still see will come to me saying things like, 
I just don't know why this is happening. I can't sleep and I keep getting these weird tight chest kind of periods where my heart's racing. I, I, you know, I don't know what's going on or why. And when we unpack it, they've actually two months ago just broken up with their partner of five years or they've lost their job because of the pandemic and the impacts of COVID. Um, but because the mind is so good, I think, at, at protecting us from really having to confront that and feel that, anxiety is one of these fascinating things where it can kind of just start to, to come out the edges because that's all boiling away subconsciously. Um, a metaphor I often use with people for anxiety is a boiling kettle or, or like a pot on a stove, you know, and if that's boiling away and bubbling away underneath the surface, the steam has to come out somewhere. And for a lot of people that is through anxiety. Um, and we often don't pick that up until it really, really starts to knock on the door for our attention and mental health struggles will do that. If we don't shine the light on them and make the subconscious conscious, often they can just build more and more steam under there until it gets to the point where the lid blows off it and all of a sudden we're thinking, what the heck is going on and why? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And it sort of reminds me as well, Rach, of, of just learning to pick up anxiety really because for some of us anxiety very much is a conscious thing we can feel panicked we can feel anxious we can know we're in that place but it's actually more common for anxiety symptoms to not be in the mind and that's why I love this mind-body medicine because often anxiety is in the body we might be getting tight traps and shoulders and this is one of my keys if I know it's been a stressful week I, I you know I, my neck is is just kind of locked up like a rock uh, for some people it might be tummy aches and butterflies in the stomach constantly for some people it's their sleep just going off for a week or two so I think understanding that anxiety can very much be in the body and can come out through a lot of these different avenues is helpful for people because that allows us to make the unconscious conscious. If I can say, why am I sleeping like shit this week? Or why am I getting these headaches and my back and neck is locked up like crazy? If we can step back and say, actually, it's been a pretty tough month after that breakup. Maybe this is seeping through from my mind. That is that key catchable moment where we can make the unconscious conscious and that's where the mind gets to let off a little bit of that steam. So, yeah, anxiety is a fascinating beast, but it's... Uh... <laughs> it's so fascinating and because it's so common as well, you know, I, I know a lot of us experience anxiety, but I think just even that piece of connecting the body and the mind and understanding that you can experience anxiety in different manifestations through the body. And that, I guess, like you said, it's different for everybody. It can um, present in different ways. Um, and you talked there about connecting or really allowing the unconscious to become conscious, which I think is a really key piece as well, because sometimes we don't know why we are experiencing anxiety symptoms and to allow that to become conscious is a huge piece to it too. So kind of still talking about, because this is super fascinating to me, this, this whole connection between unconscious mind and conscious mind. And 
I suppose it's perhaps something that we don't speak about again in mainstream messaging as much. Um, But what is your take on the unconscious knowing things, even if, so just that example that you just gave before where you may have experienced something five, you might've experienced a breakup five months ago and now it's manifesting in the body and it's coming through. What is your take on the unconscious actually knowing things that hasn't happened? Mm. Um, Is that something that you see where people are experiencing maybe a particular or particular series of symptoms in their body. Mm-hmm. Do you sort of see that as being a signal to go, let's look at what's going on. There's obviously something you're not looking at mm-hmm. and perhaps it, nothing has happened in their life yet. Yep. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, that can absolutely be the case and it may be, it may be that something is underneath there that happened a long time ago, you know, and I think our, our godfather of psychiatry, Freud, uh, who <laughs> has had a lot of his stuff debunked because we won't start talking about, you know, women wanting penises and boys <laughs> wanting to sleep with their mothers and all of this crazy stuff that Freud talked about. Oh, but, you know, some of, the, some of the great stuff that Freud left us with is a lot of theory about the subconscious. And he talked about potentially things from the long-term past still being locked away and at various points in our lives, sometimes for no clear reason, them just coming a little bit closer to the surface and causing problems. Uh, And then I think, as you said, in terms of the unconscious mind, maybe knowing things that haven't quite happened yet, I think, again, the mind can be very, very adept in hiding things from us that maybe are at this point in time a little bit too difficult or scary or anxiety provoking to confront so yeah I think it's often the case you know that I'll talk to people who are experiencing anxiety and depression and it may be that they are actually just really unhappy in their current relationship and a part of their subconscious maybe knows this isn't right for me and I think it's going to have to end but that emotional scary package is too much for the conscious brain quite yet. So that's an example maybe of, of where the unconscious has kind of got a bit of a step ahead uh, yes. in terms of the conscious mind. And something else that I love from Freud, if we're kind of going down a subconscious <laughs> conscious rabbit hole, is, is this idea of defense mechanisms. And I've always found that fascinating. When I did a psychology degree before medical school, it just absolutely had me geeking out. And I love that I can still use some of that theory now in my work. But defense mechanisms are really fascinating. And we all use different ones to keep us going every single day. And using them is very normal, but sometimes they can become a problem because they're boxing off some of these difficult things that that really need to be released. So an example of a defense mechanism might be, and this is going to sound very psychobabbly, so tell me to shut up, Rachel, no, if it's going I too far. I love hearing all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm but, geeking out right now. <laughs> you know, reaction formation, for example, is a defense mechanism where we act in the opposite way to how we're actually feeling subconsciously. And, for example, this might be a common, def- common defense mechanism for people pleasers or perfectionists. Actually, there's a lot of anxiety and maybe even anger underneath there subconsciously. But to protect the conscious mind from that, 
the subconscious flips it into being overly pleasant and helpful and always saying yes and always perfecting everything and polishing everything. And that keeps the conscious mind safe from some of those not so nice feelings underneath. Um, you know, and there are a whole lot of different defense mechanisms. I think intellectualization is one that we all do a lot, you know, and, and we do this with our mates and our family. For example, if we've had a breakup, we'll, we'll kind of pick through all the reasons why actually that guy or that girl was, was a real flog. So, you know, if we actually think it out, it's good that we broke up, you know, this is a good thing and this is why, and, you know, and I'm not saying that that's not true in some cases, <laughs> but often that's a way for our mind to kind of protect us and rationalize and intellectualize things so that we don't have to directly confront those sticky, messy, difficult feelings. So absolutely, I think the subconscious knows a lot of stuff that the conscious doesn't, and it works very hard to actually protect us from some of those things. And that can be a normal, helpful, everyday thing. But if there are big things going on underneath there, or if there are a lot of defense mechanisms that are just paper macheing over stuff and that steam is building, building, it can get to a point for any of us where the mind starts to become overwhelmed and we can fall into anxiety, depression, covering it up more overtly with sex or drugs or alcohol. So, yeah, it's... Uh, fascinating frightening crazy so world fascinating. between our ears uh, yeah <laughs> but it's obviously amazing. I geek out on that so I love it <laughs> me too I love nerding out on this stuff it's just it's so fascinating to me really un unpacking this connection between unconscious and conscious mm -hmm. and just the fact that our unconscious mind is so wise like it has yeah. so much there that we just don't and like yep. you said I loved what you were saying there about you know that our our conscious mind protects us because or our unconscious protects us because sometimes it's too much for us to do and I definitely feel like we all have experienced this I'm sure at some point in our lives where the pain of something is too much to deal with so we're going off distracting ourselves Absolutely. doing other things yep. and at some point we will have to deal with those emotions they come up at some point and you need to process them obviously through the body and maybe it's through talk therapy or psychotherapy definitely um, yeah. But, yeah, it's it's so fascinating to me. Yeah. So and I think it, it brings us back to that point, like we were saying around men particularly, it brings us back to the point of actually I think all of us in modern society getting a little bit more used to leaning in to confronting some of those messy, uncomfortable, grey zone kind of feelings and acknowledging them to ourselves but also speaking them out. And that might not be to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but it might be to a partner, to a best mate, to a family member. And we really cannot overstate the power that just speaking it out can have. And I think, you know, all the bells and whistles that modern medicine and psychiatry has, you know, I don't think there will ever be a more powerful tool for the work that I do than just that releasing of what's bottled up in there. And um, again, it doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be psychobabbly. It doesn't have to be spilling your entire life story and your life history. For some men, 
and again, I'm using men as an example, it might be as much as saying, yeah, bro, it's been a really, really hard month and actually the breakups knocked me around quite a bit. For some men, that might be enough of a release to just feel like they've they've got some of it out there and they've told someone and it can let a little bit of steam out of that tap. So, yeah, I think we need to kind of... We need to acknowledge that the unconscious mind helps us, but we also need to acknowledge that we need to help it release some of that steam as well. So we need to be turning the tap regularly. And, you know, even though I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a doctor, I love this stuff. I talk to people about it every day, even for me in my personal life, especially as a man coming to terms with, with even actioning that more often in my own life um, has probably been one of the most powerful things that working in, in psychiatry has taught me actually. Um, you know, I think I've always been a very, <laughs> as you can tell, right, a very verbal kind of <laughs> open heart on sleeve kind of guy, but you know, I can be a perfectionist. I can be a control freak. Uh, and that's probably putting it lightly. Some of my mates and family members will be having a big old laugh if I say <laughs> I'm a bit of one of those things. But, you know, so even for me, leaning more into being vulnerable, messy, you know, accepting that that difficult things are there at times and just talking it out and being honest, Um you know, I think that is step number one for how we all start to look after our mental muscle a little bit more. We just need to be taking some of the steam out from out. there. Yeah, 100%. And I, I, I really love what you say there about implementing those practices in our lives and whether that is to talk to somebody that you feel comfortable sharing a little bit or if not just letting out a little bit of it I mean one of the things that I really love to do because I'm the same as you I do need I talk a lot to Mm -hmm. people that I feel comfortable talking with however you know if you don't feel like you have someone to talk to as well I like to write a lot and just getting it out on the page is huge you could just dump your emotions on there doesn't have to be eloquent at all. You just no. get them out of the body, out of the mind, and it sort of just gives you a little bit more of a, a fresh slate, right? Yeah, I love that. And there's actually some really powerful research around that as well. And I, I think that's a really good point for us to flag, actually, Rach. Not, not everyone has someone that mm. they feel they can talk to and not everyone is the kind of person that actually wants to do that or finds that really naturally easy. So knowing that... Research actually shows if you're writing things down, even typing them on a computer, it can serve some of that same purpose in terms of just offloading it from your mind and helping release some of it. Um, A lot of us have been talking to friends or doing voice notes more over the pandemic. Um, And I've got one of my best mates in New Zealand we fell into the habit of doing WhatsApp voice notes to each other, which is uh, almost turned into weird little mini podcasts once a week <laughs> of how our life's going. But, you know, even that, it, in terms of some people I've talked to, talk into a voice note just to offload some of it. And that might sound a little strange in terms of, well, does that mean I'm talking to myself? No, you can act like you're talking to a friend or even a therapist, but you're just offloading it. So I think however works for you to feel like you're just 
acknowledging some of those emotions and getting them out, go for gold. And like you said, it doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be what we see in movies of when people have a big catharsis moment. It can just be whatever wants to come at that time and knowing that that's helpful. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's another thing that I do as well is is talking to a voice note. It's not to for anybody else. It's just for you to offload stuff. So, yep. great, great that. things. Yeah, that you can do. Um, so kind of c- coming off this little tangent and and still working into the the whole idea about these big things that happen in our lives, right? Mm careers, relationships, breakups, all those kinds of things. I think one of the things that has happened a lot over the last two years is that it has given people a lot of time to reflect on their lives and people have made big career changes, have ended relationships, started new relationships, moved locations, a lot of big life changes. And I think if they hadn't already done it over the last couple of years, what I have noticed just from talking to people is that now not being in lockdowns, people who haven't made any big changes are now starting to make those changes. Mm, So this is a big period of time for, again, more breakups, more Mm -hmm. relocations. There's there's another wave of uh, these big life changes happening. So with making these big decisions um, in our lives, what are your suggestions? Because like we kind of touched on earlier, these kinds of things can be scary uh, and bring up a lot of fear and obviously anxiety because it's making a change and you don't necessarily know what it's going to be like on the other side. There's a lot of uncertainty with the new, even if it is something maybe that is exciting, like you said, your relocation to Sydney, there's a lot of change there. So what are your suggestions around dealing with Firstly, making the decision if you mm-hmm. know that that's something that's sort of bubbling in your unconscious that you haven't quite looked at yet, that whole process. Yeah, yeah. Really, really tough. And something that comes to my mind initially here is the the no-win scenario. Um, people may have heard, I think there's a TED Talk by, I think it's Angela Duckworth, a famous TED talk about making difficult decisions. Um, But there's a lot of research behind this. And I think it can be tough when we make these big life decisions like, do I want to live in the city anymore? Or do I want to change careers? Or do I want to leave my partner after 10 years? It's difficult because there are so many factors in those decisions and there's no clear right or wrong choice. You know, and so I think the difficult thing when we're making these decisions or we feel that it's bubbling up from our subconscious and we're starting to think, is this the career for me? Am I happy? Do I want to make a change? It's tough because I think all of us know the experience of saying, well, if I stay as I am right now, these are the pros and these are the cons. But if I change, I think these are the pros and these are the cons. And more often than not, those things feel sometimes quite balanced. You know, there's no clear kind of way to go. And I think when we're making a big change, it's frightening because nothing's guaranteed. You know, and I think if people are anything like me, (laughs) they're a bit of a perfectionist. (laughs) There's always that awful thought in the back of their mind of, what if I do this thing and it turns out in a year's time that that was the wrong decision and I regret it? Um, So I think that ramble was to say, 
it's okay to feel like this is really difficult stuff and there's no clear way to, to make the decision or to know which is right and wrong because that's just what these decisions are. And I think with that brings a lot of understandable mental strain. And so when we're going through these decisions or these changes, it's really, really common to go through a period of what we call an adjustment reaction or an adjustment disorder if it becomes severe enough. And that's a period, usually short-lived, but a period of time where people might not be sleeping well. They might be having panic attacks or feel intensely anxious. They might be feeling worried all the time or stressed or tense. They might be grumpy, irritable, not themselves. And that's because your brain and your subconscious is just trying to, to kind of meander its way through this decision and change. So I think step one with this is to know that it's just tough for all of us and it's not going to feel very comfortable and that's okay. That's normal. That doesn't mean that the decision is wrong. That doesn't mean you're making the wrong decision or that, um, you know, there's something wrong with you or you're losing your mind. It's just the way the subconscious and the conscious are reacting to this. Um, I think in terms of how we make those decisions, because you're right, so many of us are jumping into new relationships, changing cities, changing careers. And I think that's because the pandemic has really boiled a lot of us down to some of those key things in terms of what's actually important and, and how we actually want to feel and live our lives. Um, I think when it comes down to tips around how to make those decisions, Again, this is probably going to sound very unhelpful, but I think more often than not, it's going with your gut, you know, and I think I'm a big believer that if our subconscious and our gut are telling us something, then then that's worth listening to, you know, I think, and again, this is very very much generalizing and, and it's not direct advice. So please don't all go away and <laughs> quit your jobs or leave your partners. <laughs> but, you know, I think... I often say to people, if you're asking the question, then there's a reason for that. So people will often ask me, what do you think I should do? Or should I get help? Or should I change careers? And I will often say, well, let's try and unpack why you're actually asking that question in the first place. So I think sometimes starting from the root of it there can be a helpful way to help clarify it for you but it can also help reassure you that you know if, if you're thinking about changing your job or moving cities that's not something that someone you know has just blown into your brain it's not something that an alien's inserted in there if that question is there and it's really feeling like something quite strongly is there in your gut around that there's a reason for that so I would just tell people to, to kind of don't, again, don't be afraid of leaning into that messiness and vulnerability. And um, speaking from experience recently, as we've just said, right, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, yes, it's stressful. Yes, it's scary. Yes, there's all the, am I making the right decision or the wrong decision? But, you know, these are the points where we grow as well. And um, it's kind of like weathering that storm and then coming out the other side of it. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I think when it comes to big life decisions or mental health struggles, uh, you know, as a psychiatrist, I would put my hand up and say, don't run from it. Don't 
avoid it. Don't box it away in the subconscious. Shine the spotlight on it and don't be afraid to lean into it, I think. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. And I love that you brought up that gut feeling as well. Mm -hmm. And just, just the point of even saying, why am I even asking this question yep. in the first place? Because yep. you're right, like that doesn't just come from nowhere. There's obviously absolutely. something inside yep. you that is going, look at this for a second. Yes. Because if absolutely. you were completely content with whatever it is, it wouldn't even be a question. You'd just go and live in your life, wouldn't you, really? A hundred percent. And I don't think we allow ourselves that enough. Mm. You know, I, I think, I mean, we've we've talked about the unconscious mind a lot, but, you know, it, it often does send up little flares, I think. And and as you said beautifully before, Rach, I think it, it often knows and feels a lot that, that it's maybe protecting us from or that our conscious mind can't quite take on yet but often it will send up little flares and those flares might be mental health struggles or anxiety sometimes, or they might be questions bubbling up around, is this person right for me? Do I want to stay in this relationship, for example? And just as you said, we shouldn't shy away from those flares. We need to be saying, if this question's here, it must be here for a reason. Um, so yeah. Oh gosh, it's tough. It's a uh, <laughs> human, humans. Uh, yeah. Life is tough, but it's, it's, it's yeah. complex, isn't it? There's a lot going on Absolutely. so much, but it's very, very fascinating to me. I'm, I really love unpacking all of this stuff. We're just going to come to what, I mean, we, we have so, I know we could talk for so long about all of this <laughs> we stuff, could, literally. Yeah. Um, but there's one thing that I, I do want to also kind of speak to you about because I guess, you know, we're on the other side of this pandemic, right? Well, quote unquote, hopefully, hopefully yeah. right? <laughs> God, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, a lot of us are experiencing what a, a term that I've heard you sort of talk about, which is pandemic burnout or pandemic fatigue, which I know in Melbourne, you know, we, we got out of lockdown in end of last year, but I yeah. still feel that obviously the effects of the pandemic and having gone through lockdowns and whatnot is still with us, right? We're all carrying around now this experience and sometimes it can be stored in the body and all of those kinds of things. So I'm interested to know, you know, sort of what people might be, what you may have been observing with people experiencing pandemic fatigue or burnout. What does that look like in people or what does it look like in the body? Um, and what sort of strategies can we sort of put in place to, I guess, reduce those, those symptoms that we might sure. be experiencing? Definitely. You know, I've, I've talked about this quite a lot last year and, and this year as well, you know, because just as you said, Rach, it's still there for a lot of people. And I think the interesting thing about burnout and the sense of emotional fatigue that I think a lot of us are feeling after everything we've been through the last two years is that now that the, and again, touch wood, cross all fingers and toes, now that the, the, gas is coming off the pedal a little bit and I think the adrenaline is is coming off for a lot of us because we are hopefully starting to get back to some kind of normal and at least in terms of pandemics we'll leave floods and wars and horrific other things out of that for now but you know I, I think it's interesting with the mind once the adrenaline and that that intense pressure comes off that's often when we start to feel the sense of burnout and fatigue and I think it's really really common at the moment so 
when we're talking about pandemic burnout or, you know, emotional fatigue, what we're sort of talking about is, is quite a classic kind of sense of burnout. But I think for a lot of us, when we hear the term burnout, we just think work. Okay, you get burnt out at work. Um, and that was initially true in terms of that classic burnout kind of terminology. But what we now know is that you can actually get burnt out or mentally and emotionally fatigued from a lot of different sources. And I think the pandemic has been a big one that all of us have gone through in some way. So we're talking about people often feeling just emotionally quite blunt and fatigued, just numb almost. That's what I'm hearing a lot of people describe. Um, a lot of people are feeling very mentally fatigued. They're just sleeping well. They're still going to the gym. They're still getting up and doing their routines. But mentally, they're just feeling quite heavy and overloaded and even little stresses or changes at the moment are causing big ripples. So, you know, I, I think experiencing that mentally is very common. And as you said, it's actually common for the body to soak up some of these things as well. So for a lot of people, burnout might come as feeling just very unmotivated and, and physically tired. A lot of people might be struggling with their sleep right now. They might be experiencing it as anxiety in terms of tension, tummy aches, chest tightness, um, you know, and I think the last point there that a lot of people are experiencing is actually just feeling not quite themselves. They're feeling grumpy, irritable, you know, like it's just all a little bit too much right now. So if people are experiencing that, I think it can be helpful to just acknowledge that, that that's what you may be going through. Because I think a lot of people are feeling not themselves right now and not that great. And we don't quite know why. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, we've come through the pandemic, or I know that compared to a lot of people, I'm very lucky and I'm grateful. Um, so why am I not quite feeling myself? But it's because of the mental burden and all of the changes and uncertainty and sudden lockdowns and sudden restrictions and being cut off from friends and family all of these things have kind of accumulated over the last two years. And now it's the point where a lot of people are really feeling that mentally. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that. The people I've spoken to are feeling that. I even put out a poll on my Instagram to say, you know, you know, are we, who's feeling sort of completely different than they were two years ago? And it was 100%. Yes, I'm I'm not the same person that I was two years ago. And I know for me, definitely, when you when you speak about things more easily triggering you, you know, I, I experienced anxiety pre-COVID, but post-COVID, post quote-unquote, post-COVID, um, things trigger me more easily. My symptoms are more um, or heightened and more frequent, more intense. Like these are the things that are, you know, people are experiencing, I think, across the board from Absolutely. what we've just gone through, which is um, I think it's just good to, to know what it is and to acknowledge, like you said, that that's, that's what's going on. Um, Definitely. And, you know, I think it always starts with acknowledging and, and you know, I'm going to sound like a dog with a bone on this in terms of just leaning into it, shining the spotlight on it, that can be really really helpful just knowing that it's not because something's changed in you or something's wrong with you necessarily it's just knowing that after the last two years the mind 
for a lot of people is feeling very heavy and very overloaded. Um, and a lot of, of what I'm hearing, especially from young people at the moment too, is the sense of, okay, well, it was all good and well for me to just be having Netflix nights and, you know, kind of feeling slightly relieved that social events are cancelled when it was lockdown and the pandemic. But now I still kind of feel like I just need a lot of rest time and introvert time, even for people that are actually extroverts. I think a lot of them are still feeling, God, I'm, I'm still kind of just wanting alone time right now. Why? And I think it's because a big tip for how to look after ourselves and get through this period of, of pandemic burnout is to actually just recognize that we need to still be allowing our mind and body some time to rest. And I know it feels like, oh God, we had the whole pandemic and I was living in Melbourne and we were locked down for <laughs> the better part of two years. So I've had enough rest, haven't I? But, but actually, if you think about it, you haven't because your mind has been coping with the stress, the change, being separated from friends and family, the stress, the worry, and now might be the only time in two years that that is starting to lift. So actually, we need to acknowledge that this is the time that your mind and body probably actually still need some rest. So just locking in the basics. Um, and I know that you're all over this and you love this stuff too, Rach, but so much of looking after the mind is looking after the body. And I love talking about this stuff because it makes it practical for people, I think. If you're looking after your sleep, resting, napping if and when you need to, getting a good nutritious diet and doing some gentle exercise each day, yes, those things feel like they're for your bod, but they actually are doing so, so much for your mind and your mental health as well. So I think if people are feeling this pandemic burnout right now, just allowing yourself a more time and space to lock in some of those mind-body basics to let your mind finally catch up and start to rest. Because actually up until now, no matter how many Netflix movies you've watched, which I can say <laughs> I never <laughs> thought I would watch so many movies as I had in the last year, but you actually haven't been fully resting because you've still been, oh, shit, are we about to go back into lockdown, mm. masks on trains, masks in shops? now might be the first time in a long time that you can actually start to get some of the benefits from resting your brain and your body. So you need to still allow yourself time to do that if you need to. Yeah, I think it's so important for us to recognise that. And, you know, I think pre-COVID, I mean, the the cultural I think expectation was you know being productive and doing all this mm, stuff yeah. and you know now that now that society is somewhat open or somewhat back to normal quote mm -hmm. unquote normal it's almost like you don't want to just push yourself into returning straight into that without acknowledging what has actually happened over the last two years and I I really love that you've said that is that yes we actually haven't had time to rest this is the first time that absolutely we're now oh okay so now we're sort of out of it now we can just take a breather for a second yeah exactly yeah. this might be the first time in a long time for some people that they can take that exhale you know yeah. and obviously this is also I think needing to acknowledge the fact that for a lot of people and for a lot of places in the world that's not the case you know and so I really really want to acknowledge that that for all the people going through the horrific 
traumatic things they've been going through with the floods recently for, for everything going on in the world with Ukraine, for example. Mm. You know, this this isn't a point of being able to exhale for so many people, and that's coming off the back of two years of the pandemic. So this is still an intensely difficult time for people. And still, I think for no matter what spot you're in, even if you're not directly affected by the floods or what's happening in Ukraine, there are still a lot of things happening in the world that we're all soaking in and feeling for and, and feeling compassion and emotion for. And so it's it's still it's still a lot. There is still a lot going on in the world. So acknowledging to yourself that you just need to look after your mind and let it rest when and however it can is really, really important right now. Yeah. So just make sure that you do that for yourselves, guys listening, because it's it's so hugely important for your body and your mind both, right? Um, so one of the things that I do like to speak to all my guests about is rejection and failure because mm-hmm. we all experience these things. Yeah. And I'm I'm really interested to know what is your biggest or most notable rejection mm-hmm. or failure and what did you learn from it? Ooh, it's a biggie. <laughs> and I, had to think, yeah. I will not go down a trip down uh, my romantic memory lane in terms of rejections there, Rach. But uh, no, probably I would say my biggest rejection um, of all time so far in my life was actually I went straight from university, sorry, straight from high school to university. And I did that first year hectic, competitive, trying to get into medical school year. uh, And I actually missed out on medical school on my first application, which was devastating for me. You know, it was something that I'd wanted to do for so long. And that damn chemistry and physics, just uh, not my strong point, (laughs) at least at that point in my life. So, you know, that was really, really tough in terms of a real pivot point and a sense of, gosh, is this what I want to do? Am I good enough to do this? Um, So that was very tough. And I remember at that time, gosh, how old would I have been? I think I would have been 18 when that happened. So, there was also just a lot going on. I'd moved into the city from my small country town and, you know, all of those 18-year-old <laughs> going out and, you know, meeting people kind of things going on as well. So it was a tough time when that happened. And um, I think what it really taught me is that, and this probably sounds a bit cringy to everyone listening, apologies, but I think it on reflection has really taught me that things do happen for a reason and kind of moving with the flow of what happens and obviously not becoming victimized to it or just giving up or giving in, but moving with the flow and pivoting, regrouping and just realizing that things do sometimes happen for a reason. That's probably the biggest lesson I've learned there because when I missed out on that first application, I then found psychology and I fell in love with psychology and I ended up doing a psych degree. And obviously because that frothed me to no end and I loved it, I did really well in that degree. I ended up getting a scholarship to medical school on my second application and it's led me to a a fascination and passion for psychiatry and mental health. And you and I probably wouldn't be having this discussion (laughs) if that had never happened, right? So you know, it's, it's really been a big lesson to me that 
you know, some difficult, difficult things can happen in life, but it, it can be a point where we pivot and regroup and realize that that paths open up and close for a reason sometimes, not to sound too kind of. No, I love that. It's not Byron Bay, to me. Woo -woo crystals <laughs> or anything, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's probably my rejection and lesson there. I like that. I really like that. It, and I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I believe the same thing. I think things do just really happen for a reason. Now, my final question for you is if you had an overarching life philosophy or mantra that you try to live your life by, what would that be? Um, yeah, I thought about this one when I saw <laughs> the question because I feel like there's a lot of different ones I live by and I could, you know, live by so many. But one that's come to mind that I've, feel personally I've been leaning into more recently and talking to more patients and people about actually is just leaning into the the messiness of stuff and leaning into vulnerability and not being afraid to kind of wear your heart on your sleeve um, and I think for me personally and with my work with people at the moment I think that's a big lesson that a lot of us are kind of realizing and coming to terms with right now because a big part of my personality has always been being a bit of a type a being quite controlling and perfectionistic and people pleasing but I think keeping a little bit of a mantra there in terms of just leaning into messiness and leaning into you know again a bit cringy but leaning into vulnerability and not being afraid to tell yourself what you want and how you feel and tell others how you feel and what you want and what you need, even if that means needing help. I think not being afraid to wear that heart on sleeves, you know, in, in whatever area of our life that is in, um, that's, that's a bit of a kind of a guiding, guiding post, I think, at the moment for me with my professional work with people, because I think so many of us are in this space where we're going through changes and leaning into messiness and <laughs> things don't feel like they're all clear and sorted. So professionally, I think that's a, a mantra I've been trying to work with people around and then personally as well. I think it's just a really, it's a really helpful one to kind of, like we said, just, just go with the flow of life rather than kind of resisting it or trying to trying to keep it clean and polished and unmessy all the time because unfortunately that's, <laughs> not, that's, how not, life that's is. <laughs> not what life is going to throw at us. And if no. I can say anything as a psychiatrist, it is that, that, mm. you know, it's, it's pretty damn normal to feel like your life is a little bit of a chaotic storm in a teacup at any point in time. And, and that's okay. We just need to realize that it's, it's leaning into that and with it rather than running away from it. That's the key. Yeah, I love that so much. Just lean into the messiness, lean into the vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. I love that so much. Thank you so much for this amazing chat. I've loved it so much. I was going to say, like, I feel like we could, we could, chat <laughs> we could for just so keep long. chatting all afternoon. Oh, my goodness. But Literally could nerd out to you, me and Scotty, yeah. I think would just have... <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that. When you come to Sydney and we yeah. go for that coffee, yeah, yeah, we'll have to brace ourselves for some. We will. We need to deep block out conscious chats. That's it. Yeah. We need to block out a whole afternoon. I think for, <laughs> for this. Definitely. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. It's been such an amazing um, conversation and, and really great to get stuck into all of these yeah. cool topics with you. So, um, 
Now, where can people find you and all your good work mm. that you are doing? Yeah, uh, if people want to hear any more rambles or writing, um, that's yeah. I'm often putting stuff up on my Instagram, which is just Dr. Kieran Kennedy, uh, and then on my website as well, which is again just drkierankennedy.com. I'm often putting up some of my speaking or TV clips or writing bits and pieces, um, and then yeah, I write regularly for for Men's Health magazine and a few different spaces and places too. So um, yeah, people can kind of get a little bit more of, of the cringy, geeky <laughs> stuff that I'm throwing out there if they'd like to. All useful things, though, all useful and practical things that we can implement in our lives. So uh, we'll make sure that we'll throw all of those uh, links and things up in the show notes for you guys. Thanks again so much, Kieran, for joining me. And thank you guys for listening. Tell us what you loved and learnt from this episode. There's so much in here, so I'm sure you learnt something. So make sure you leave a rating or review over at Apple Podcasts. Make sure you screenshot shot this episode and tag us and share it to your IG stories. Thanks again for listening, guys, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Rage Active Podcast.